Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Before we start today's episode, I, I just want to ask Tessa, what did you do yesterday? Tell our viewers what you did. <laughs> okay. This is really going to expose my stalking capabilities. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, as you may know from listening to our podcast for a long time, Jesse and I are huge fans of Ghost Adventures. You know, the show on Travel Channel with Zach Bagans and Aaron Goodwin. So, I follow Zach Bagans and I have his notifications turned on because he comes to Utah a lot. On Instagram. Yes, sorry, yeah. on Instagram. And yesterday, he posted a video for his birthday where he was in a hotel parking lot. And I had my suspicions they were in Utah because the day before he posted a video of a bison and it looked like Antelope Island. So I was like, I think they're in Utah. Then yesterday he posted that story where he was in a hotel parking lot and he kind of did like a 180 pan around it. And on one side, I saw a restaurant that I recognized. And then on the other side, I saw a store that I recognized and I recognized the mountains in the background. And I was like, I know exactly where they are. And then in that story, they like, they panned up to the, one of the windows of where they're staying. And it was so easy. I knew exactly what hotel they were in. I didn't even have to dive in like that hard. I just knew what it was because I know the area. Well, not only do you know the area, it's, it's where we grew up. So you were like, oh, boom, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, exactly. And so I may or may not have driven to the parking lot of the hotel (laughs) and just like sat there for a minute, not long, but just like waiting to see if they happen to come out. Um, They didn't, but I saw their cars. Oh, so they were there. They were there. Okay. So I was wondering if they were off filming for the night, which would make sense. They could have been, but they had their two big like black SUVs there. And I knew it was theirs because in that video, one of the crew members was in the car. So, and it was their car. Gotcha. You could have just hung out in the hotel lobby probably. True. (laughs) Threw a rock up at the window. (laughs) (laughs) Come outside. We love you. Hey, be on our podcast. Honestly, if I saw him, (laughs) I was kind of planning to be like, what's your name? (laughs) Just so he'd be like, my name is Zach Bagans. (laughs) We want answers. <laughs> answers. That's awesome. Um, when you were texting me that, I I died laughing because just knowing you, you would do that. So <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a compliment or not, but I will take it. <laughs> I, I don't think you would have done that for anyone else except, you know, Zach Bagans. So yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. So switching it up a little bit today for all our listeners, if you caught last week's episode, recommend that you go back and listen to it before you listen to this one Uh, because today tessa is going to share part two of her jim jones jonestown story um but before we get to that i have the reddit story for today and then we'll get to your story after that and before we get started i just want to let everyone know that uh, any images that we post uh, that, or excuse me, any images that relate to our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram. Also post those on our TikTok. You can check us out on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube as well. If you have any stories that you would like us to read on the podcast, we would love to do that. You can email those to us at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram, uh, which guess what? Do you have a story? I do. Yes. And it's from one of our favorite listeners. No way. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. It's this just one. warms my cold dead heart. <laughs> uh, so this story is from uh, EDH Freak. Okay. Do you have anything before I get started? No, I'm just excited. Let's do it. All right. I remember it like it was yesterday. A late night slash early morning in 2014, and it had been the most terrifying experience of my life. See, I'm a pretty avid outdoorsy person. I go hiking, rock climbing, 
camping, the occasional cave diving, that sort of outdoorsy. While I have come across some pretty scary experiences, like happening upon a mother bear and her cubs, who weren't too happy to see me, to crawling into a small cave to get out of the weather, and finding a pack of feral dogs eating a fresh kill, all the way down to being lost and stranded for 48 hours in a national state park with temperatures plummeting and rain turning to ice. All of this, and it pales in comparison to what happened to me that day. A buddy of mine, we'll call him Michael for this story, and I have been planning and I have been planning to set out on a hiking slash camping trip for months now in a remote area of southern Illinois, not too far from the Shawnee National Forest. This particular day we decided I would be driving and he would navigate us to where we needed to go. This is important as it is normally the other way around, being that he is horrible with directions. The long and short of this is We arrive at an area that is pretty remote. The paved highway became a gravel road, which then turned to mostly dirt about seven miles back. I should have known then that we were lost, but he assured me that he knew where we were. Finally admitting that we were lost and he had no idea where we were, we settled on going ahead and finding a place to set up camp and explore this area. Seeing that we were actually looking for a location that was remote and likely not contaminated by tourists. After setting up our campsite, we pulled out our GPS and began to check out the area. We had only walked a couple miles from our tent when I began to notice this forest was a little more different than I had anticipated. To put it into perspective, a storm had recently rolled through the area and had a lot of limbs and larger branches that were down, making navigating a little tougher than we had wanted, but we may do. What I had noticed, though, was not branches all over the place, but that many of the trees were missing bark up higher along the trunks, and not like the bark had blown off, but like it had been peeled off cleanly. Now, I know there are a ton of reasons that something like this could happen, but it just struck me as odd, as it seemed to be uh, present that they were in clusters, and it was not like it was torn along the entire tree, just in spots about 10 feet long. Again, Nothing to set off alarm bells or anything, just a weird phenomenon of nature. If you have ever been hiking in the woods, you know the sounds, the birds chirping, wind blowing, leaves rustling, frogs, crickets, wildlife just living their best lives. And if you are in tune with nature and you have spent some time out there, you know when things change. I'm talking about when everything goes silent. No animal sounds. No insects, singing, nothing. In most instances, because science, this means that a natural predator is in the area and the wildlife is trying to not become its next prey. It is a hell of an adrenaline rush to say the least when this happens, because you don't know if you are the predator or if it's something that considers you the prey. Even then, some things are just different. Walking along, no path in particular, we both must have noticed at the same time, but the birds had silenced themselves. Frogs had hushed, and not a cricket could be heard. Just the wind, the crunching below our feet, and the sounds of the trees rubbing together above our heads. Mike looked over at me with his furrowed look on his face and whispered about how quiet everything was, and I agreed and noted that the air around us smelled foul, putrid, future even and tried not to gag this is where everything changed like i said if you have been in nature enough you recognize the sounds you know the sounds of cracking and grinding tree branches you know what it sounds like when the wind blows a smaller branch into a larger one making a thudding sound you know these things what you may not know is the sound of branches rubbing together making a creeching sound That's the best way I can describe it. After about 30 minutes of us heading deeper into the woods, the creech, creech grew louder and some quieter more off in the distance. Same tone, but different pitches. See, branches rubbing together don't just change pitch. They don't go from a real dull sound to an almost high-pitched whining sound. They just don't do that. They aren't capable of it. At this point... I'll be honest, I was getting a bit uncomfortable, 
and not that uncomfortable feeling like my feet hurt and I need to rest, but that feeling of unease like something was watching me or that I didn't belong where I was. The hair on my arms and neck were standing at full attention. The goosebumps that covered my body and not fear, not dread, but overall terror just filled me from, from my core. There is no other way to explain it. Like I said earlier, I have mistakenly walked up on a mother bear and her cubs, and that was definitely fearful, but this was utter terror that filled me, and I had no idea why. Looking over at Michael, I noticed he could feel something too, so I suggested we head back to camp and just search around there for a bit, get comfortable for the night, as the nightfall was soon approaching. We made our trek back, and the closer we got to camp, the more the mood lightened and the more comfortable I became. I got to work on starting a small fire while Mike went to search for more logs and branches for it. About ten minutes later, there was a rustle in the foliage behind me. Branches snapping and the sound of something rushing toward me. I grabbed the large branch I was using to steer the fire and and prepared for the worst. That's when Mike burst through the tree line looking white as a ghost and kept glancing behind him. It took a few minutes to calm him down enough to talk to me, but what he told me chilled me to my core. He had gathered half a dozen small branches and came across a clearing we had missed earlier with a small pond in the center. He decided to head down towards it and see if there was anything of interest. As he got closer to the pond, he said that he could smell something that could only be described as rot or decay. And then he heard that now familiar creeching noise we heard earlier, quieter and not too far off. Looking in the direction of the noise, he said he saw the tree moving, not like swaying, but shifting its bark down along the base of it until it reached the forest floor and disengaged from the tree. What he saw was about four feet tall, thin, almost emaciated, bipedal creature with long legs and a short torso with long arms that that ended in claws. The skin of the creature looked eerily identical to the tree bark almost all over. He stood in disbelief, staring at this thing as it turned toward the pond, showing a set of beady greenish eyes with a red tint and no sign of ears, almost lizard-like. He watched as this thing sauntered toward the pond's edge. He knelt down and cupped water into its hands and brought it up to its mouth, exposing a wide mouth full of small pointed teeth and drank the water, kind of like a person would do. Seeing this had completely startled Mike, but as he began to step backward slowly, he gasped and dropped the branches, drawing attention to himself with the creature staring right at him. Mike turned and fled back to me where he told me the story. Of course, I looked at Mike with disbelief and tried to calm him down, telling him after the trip and getting lost out here and the eerie feeling we had earlier, his eyes must have been playing tricks on him. Once he had finally chilled out and everything seemed to calm down, we had a quick dinner and retreated to our tent to go to sleep. We sat talking for a bit and I could tell he was fighting falling asleep as he was still terrified that whatever he saw was real and was after him. So I told him I would wait up for a few hours just to make sure we were safe and kind of and kind of just keep watch. With this, Mike finally drifted off, leaving me to my book and the sounds of insects, owls, and creatures of the night. A few hours had passed by, and by then I was growing tired myself. Setting my book aside and reciting to my sleeping bag, I was ready to drift off when I thought I heard some rustling outside of the tent nearby. Thinking nothing of it, but a curious raccoon or various wildlife coming to see what the delicious smell of hot dogs was, I laid my head back down to try to fall asleep, but I noticed the scent of cooking, and the fire itself had now been replaced with putrid death. It was so foul, I had to hold back from losing my dinner right then. That's when I heard it and sat bolt upright. The trees above us were rubbing together. Creech! Creech! The sound was almost deafening. However, listening intently, I realized quickly that the wind was still, no leaves were rustling, and the night outside was silent. Aside from the creech! Creech! that sounded as though it was all around us. That's when I noticed it. 
The noise was not coming from just above us. It was coming from all around us in different pitches, different tones, some with more bass. There were at least a dozen different voices. These things were all around us, not trying to make any sudden moves. I slid my hand into the bag next to my sleeping bag and found the handle to my machete, slowly pulling it out and just holding it against me like it was the holy hand grenade or something like that. I began to frantically look around the tent to see if there was anything else I could use as a shield or something when I noticed Mike sitting up in his sleeping bag, paralyzed with fear. I scooted closer to him and whispered that he needed to grab his knife and sit back to back against me to cover all angles. So we did, and we sat there like this until the sun began to rise. We stayed awake until the morning, both from absolute terror and adrenaline, staring all around us in what can only be described as fear-forced vigilance. While nothing ever attacked us through the night, there were several times one of these things brushed against our tent, the embers from the near-dead fire illuminating just enough to see outlines of whatever it was. The creeching noises were heard all night long, things being banged around in our campsite, items moved around and torn through but nothing got inside our tent. It wasn't until the sun was fully up and birds were chirping for a few hours before we decided to finally leave the confines of our, of our nylon fabric fortress. I poked my head out first, half expecting to be met with giant claws to my face, but nothing. We both exited the tent and our sight was a complete disaster. I've had coyotes and bears and raccoons tear through my campsite before, but nothing like this. The cast iron skillet was that to the side of the fire looked like it had been put through some kind of metal shredder. Pieces of it hung off jaggedly, like it looked like something just chewed right through it. The rocks around our makeshift fireplace were all but scattered. The undergrowth surrounding our site was trampled and laying flat. The cords holding onto the tent stakes were torn and frayed, but the scariest part? All of the trees surrounding us, they were now all missing the bark from the base to the top of the tree. We gathered our belongings and trash as quickly as we could, breaking camp and hightailing it back to my truck. Just as I was about to shut my door, something caught my eye. On the hood of my truck, there in the dust stirred from the roads, were small, clawed footprints about five inches long. I rustled for my phone in my pocket to take a photo when I heard it behind me, freezing me in my place. A low, not too distant, creech, creech, from above us. Quickly risking a glance as I shut my door, I saw it for the first time, near the top of one of the nearby trees, one of these creatures. To this day, now nine years later, I have never seen one of these things again, but I have heard the distant sounds of them from time to time always freezing me in my place and remembering what I experienced that night. Michael and I no longer talk. A few years after this, he had a sort of a mental breakdown and had to move across the country, out to where there are no forests for hours. I posted this encounter on Reddit several years back and obviously had people questioning me thinking that we were just crazy, or that maybe it was something else completely, but I know what we experienced. There were also plenty that did believe me, and they had stories of their own not too different from my own. One user informed me that people in his town have seen them for years and call them creechlings, mostly based off of the sounds they make. I attached a screenshot of our conversation for reference of what we talked about. I limit my time out in the woods and forests in fear I may meet one of these creechlings up close and personal by mistake, and I'm not quite sure how that would turn out. Ugh. <laughs> That's terrifying. They included pictures. Show me! Okay, I have to see this. So this is a picture uh, similar to the area of woods that they were. Already freaky. It looks like Blair White. or Blair Witch. Blair Witch. That looks like the Blair Witch Forest. It does. Um, so it's just the one picture, but he included screenshots of the conversation he had. Um, and I'll read that right now. Okay, so this Redditor saw the post, the original poster, about this story of the Creechlings. And that person reached out and it says, Hey, sorry if I'm out of line here, but I saw your post on Reddit and I just wanted to reach out. 
The town that I live in, we have seen them quite a bit. I'm not too far from where you had your sighting, but on the Kentucky side of the river. The old folks have stories about them that go way back. We call them creechlings. I can only guess from the sound they make. Anyway, I don't want to bother you or anything, just some validation, if, if anything. Wild. That's so creepy. He responded, No, hey, thanks for reaching out. It has been something I will never forget, that's for sure. Do you have any more information on them? I want to know more about them because it obviously had an impact on my life. I am terrified to go back to that area and honestly, just camp in general. Have they ever hurt anyone? Uh, person responded, Absolutely, I'll answer anything you need. I don't know a lot, but I can tell you some stuff that I do know. As far as hurting people, not that anyone has ever been able to really prove or anything, it's all just been speculation, I guess. So not really. No proof of any attacks. I mean, sure, people have been weirded out, and there are always reports of people getting hurt out in the woods or that go missing. People finding pieces of torn cloth, but the blame always goes to coyotes or the occasional wildcat. Most of what I have heard is that they are more like pranksters than anything and like to spook people. I think they are considered like fey people or whatever. I don't know a whole lot on cryptids and stuff, but it's cool to read. Uh, OP responded, ah, gotcha. So kind of like pugwudgies or imps. I don't know what pugwudgies are. I feel like I've heard that before. Yeah. That's interesting. They sure scared the crap out of me. I'd love to hear more about them if you have any stories. By the way, do you mind if I screenshot this and share it on my horror story blog? I'm going to post the story soon. And the person responded, sure, no problem. Okay. And then uh, one more picture of the... This is a similar set of trees and bark like uh, described when they were out searching around the campsite, like how everything was just off, off the trees and on the ground. Yeah, those are some pretty bare trees. Yep. And yeah, that is our story today. Once again, thank you, Freak. Yeah, thank you so much. That was so entertaining and so cool. I believe you. Okay, I am I'm dying to hear part two. I know what happens. I learned about this in history class, but I just I need to know. So go ahead, take it away. Okay, well, before we get started, just wanted to say one more thank you to that amazing author who sent in that story. I believe you. That is creepy as hell. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. So, everyone, welcome back to White Nights and Cyanide Part 2. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so just a quick reminder of where we left off last time. Leo Ryan, a congressman from the United States, and a crew of cameramen and journalists flew all the way to Guyana to check on Americans living in Jonestown, whose family members back in the States hadn't heard from them in a long time, and they were understandably growing extremely concerned for their safety. In the days leading up to the congressman's visit, Jim Jones grew extremely paranoid, and he coached his followers on what to say to their unwelcome guests once they arrived so that nothing would go wrong. Being the master manipulator that he was, Jim instilled fear in his loyal followers about the visiting crew, saying things like Leo Ryan was spreading horrible rumors about them back home in the States, such as them killing each other and eating babies and whatnot. Now, back to where we left off, it was the night of the festivities under the infamous pavilion at Jonestown. The people were singing and putting on the show of their lives for Leo Ryan and his crew of saviors in an effort to convince them that everything was fine so that they would leave sooner. As the dancing began, a member of Jonestown attempted to pass a note pleading for help to get out of Jonestown to who he thought was the congressman, but it was actually just one of his crew members. And as he passed the note, it dropped to the floor. Someone from the town saw this happen and screamed, He passed that man a note! And that's where we left off. So everyone, take a deep breath and buckle up. Things are just going to go downhill from here. <laughs> this, of course, resulted in an uproar and chaos. 
And during the mess of it all, 11 people saw their opportunity to run. And they did just that. They ran straight into the surrounding forest and escaped Jonestown with nothing but their lives because they sensed that something bad was going to happen really soon. As you can imagine, Jim was extremely upset when he heard the news that 11 people defected from Jonestown. Sorry, can I interrupt real quick? Sure. So people were so scared that they they could have left in the night. They could have left a lot earlier, but I guess he probably ran it like a concentration camp from the sound of it. It sounds like it was really intense living there. Yeah. Because a lot of nights he was doing those white nights, which if you remember from part one, he would keep his people up for all hours of the night, just yelling at them and preaching and pretending to prophesy, but he was really in just a drugged state and he wasn't making sense and he would deliver really harsh punishments. Um, He also trained everyone who lived there to be a spy and kind of rewarded them for giving him information. So people were terrified to run, which is why when there was chaos, they saw their opportunity because no one was paying attention. Sounds like you couldn't trust like even your best friend there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Sorry, go on. No, you're good. So Jim was really upset that 11 people escaped. And this wasn't because he missed them, but because it made him look bad to Leo Ryan and he could no longer control these people. So something that had been brewing in the back of Jones's mind was about to come to fruition. The idea of something he called revolutionary suicide. It would be a worldwide event where members of Jonestown everywhere would take their lives at the same time as a final act of rebellion and as a symbol of unity of their communist ideals. So the next day after that whole crazy night, Congressman Ryan was planning to leave Jonestown with his crew and take anyone who wanted to leave with them back to the States. To his surprise, person after person stepped forward saying they wanted to go home. The first truckload of people left to go to the airstrip where the planes were going to be waiting for them and Leo Ryan stayed behind to help a man who wanted to leave but his wife wouldn't let him because he was trying to take their child and she was freaking out and this was obviously an issue for Leo Ryan because he didn't feel good about separating the parents and the child. A man named Larry Layton jumped into the first truckload of people and said he wanted to leave but the people in the truck knew better Something fell off as one of them was heard saying, there's no way he's a defector. He's too close to Jones. Now, Larry Layton was none other than his right-hand man. Of course. Of course he was. Of course. There was just no way that he wanted to actually leave Jonestown where his life was cush and he had it in with everyone. But on the slim chance that he actually wanted to go, they let him leave with the others. As Leo was staying behind near the pavilion to help this couple sort out this issue, a man ran up to him wielding a knife and held it to his neck and screamed that he was going to kill him for exposing Jonestown. Luckily, some other members of the People's Temple wrestled him to the ground and took the knife away from him, and he didn't kill Leo. But, of course, this indicated to him that it was time to go and he was not safe there. Yeah, sure. And... In my research, I came across a video series from Stephanie Harlow on YouTube where she covers this in depth. And she found a quote from Jones here where as Leo Ryan's on the ground and he's like, you know, shocked that someone just held a knife to his throat. Jim walks over and he says to him, not, are you okay? Can I help you? He says, does this change anything? because he was worried about his image more than a United States congressman's health. <laughs> yep, sounds like it. Of course. So, of course, Leo was quickly on his way, and the group convened at the airstrip. And as they were waiting for the plane, a truck full of people from Jonestown arrived at the airstrip carrying guns. They were just standing there watching as the group of defectors disputed on who would go on what plane and who would have to stay behind because there weren't enough seats, which just sounds like a nightmare to me. Because at this point, everyone in Jonestown knows that you want to leave. So how could you ever go back? Yeah, right. And just like that, Larry Layton, Jim's right-hand man, 
He was on one of the planes that was preparing for takeoff. He reached into his shirt and pulled out a gun and opened fire on the group of refugees seeking freedom from their cult leader and captor. The group of people in the truck also opened fire on the remaining people on the airstrip. Bob Brown was a cameraman for NBC and was part of the crew that traveled with the congressman to Guyana. He had been filming the group of people at the airstrip as part of his documentation when the shots were fired. His camera fell to the ground and the footage of the, from the camera is terrifying because it shows people with guns closing in on the group. You can see puffs of smoke come up and bullets flying past and obviously all the horrible sounds that come with that. During the ambush, members of Jonestown and some of the crew fled into the forest around the airstrip and hid until the assassins left the scene. Larry Layton, the man who opened fire first, was disarmed by some of the survivors and luckily didn't have an opportunity to kill himself as he had planned so that he wouldn't have to stand trial. And jokes on him, he ended up having to stand trial for what he did. <laughs> Good. Five innocent people lay on the airstrip dead. Leo Ryan being one of them. Oh, no. Oh, he was gosh. shot by the gunman 20 times before fatally being shot straight in the face. So that was probably the plan then the whole time. So why did Jim even care about his image at that point if Leo wasn't even going to make it back home? He was really unstable. And yeah. he was on a lot of amphetamines at this point. So he was ra unraveling. It's It very easily could have been the plan. I could also see it like if things went well, he would let him go. If things didn't go well, he was going to kill him. But of course it was banned to fail you know, or bound to fail. Right. So Leo Ryan remains the first and only U.S. congressman to die in the line of duty. He's buried at Golden Gate Cemetery in California and was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by Ronald Reagan. Along with Leo Ryan, Bob Brown, the NBC cameraman I mentioned earlier, and Greg Robinson, who was a photographer for The Examiner, Don Harris, who was an NBC reporter, and Patricia Parks, who was a Jonestown defector, were all killed that day. During this time, Jim ordered his resident doctor and some helpers to concoct a lethal mixture. He was losing his mind, and to him, it was time to go on with this revolutionary suicide. It was time for it to happen. The doctor and his aides filled a huge metal tub with a grape-flavored drink, not Kool-Aid, as many actually falsely believe, but an off-brand of the drink called Flavor-Aid. And into this massive metal tub of liquid, they added... Now, I'm going to have to read these slowly because I don't know my drugs here, but wink, wink. <laughs> they added diphenhydramine, promethazine, chloropromazine, chloroquine, chlorohydrate, diazepam, and last but not least, cyanide. That's so many. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. They had a resident hospital there. And so I imagine that they just took everything they had and put it in with a drink. Now, during my research, as I mentioned, I found Stephanie Harlow. Uh, she's great. I really recommend everyone go watch her four-part series on this because she includes a lot of audio clips and photos. Fantastic detail. But she makes a really, really good point here that I had never thought of before. So apparently as this concoction was, you know, it's like sitting there and brewing and stuff. John, sorry, Jim Jones asked the doctor if the grape drink could be made any sweeter because it turned extremely bitter with all the poison that was added to it. Now think about it. How would he know it was bitter if it was poison? This likely means he either made someone try it or someone willingly sacrificed their life to try the drink for him to see if it would work. Uh, I wonder if, so is a sip, just like a sip of it, deadly enough? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then he definitely had to have someone mm -hmm. take a little, take a little gulp for him. Yes. Oh, awful. Even just a little cyanide, it can cause a lot of damage. So it wasn't worth trying to sip it. 
and they added a lot from what I could see. Jones also asked if it was a painless way to die, and the doctor assured him that it was. Now, Jones boomed over the intercom that every single one of his followers needed to convene at the pavilion, and of course they did, as this was standard practice in Jonestown. And the congressman had just left. This was a big day for them. Upon their arrival, the doctor and his aides brought out vats of poison and tables full of cups and syringes. Now, of course, Jim was known to record his infamous white nights of endless yelling and preaching of the end of times. So, of course, he recorded this. There's a 45 minute long recording of everything that's about to happen. Before we go deeper, though, I want you to understand just how cyanide works with human biology. Cyanide comes in many forms, including sodium cyanide, potassium cyanide, and hydrogen cyanide. It works on a cellular level, and it does this by invading every cell in the body and it attaches itself to iron found within the mitochondria of the cell. This action disrupts the electron transport train, which makes it so that the cell can no longer aerobically produce ATP for energy. This means that every single cell in the body can no longer complete aerobic respiration and every cell suffocates because of this protein binding. Your body suffocates from the inside out, rendering breathing useless and ineffective no matter how much air you gulp. According to the CDC, the effects of cyanide exposure include chest pain, dizziness, eye pain, eye tearing, difficulty breathing, nausea, vomiting, rapid or slow heart rate and breathing, wheezing, and seizures. That's just exposure, not even that it can kill you. Regardless of what spy movies tell you, death by cyanide is an extremely, excruciatingly painful way to die, and it's not instant as some of the films would have you believe, at least if you're ingesting it in powder form. The gas form is very quick, and I believe we all know that because of Nazis using it at concentration camps. However, Jim Jones used the powder form, and this can take up to five minutes to kill you. Keep in mind that the entire time you're suffering, you are fully conscious and you feel and are aware of every single effect happening within you from the poison. And as you slowly die, your skin turns bright cherry red. I guess that's a sign of cyanide poisoning. So now back to the pavilion. Jones broke the news to his people that Leo Ryan had been killed. And that because of this, the U.S. government would be invading their compound any minute now. He was frantic. He was paranoid. He was yelling. But for the members of Jonestown, many thought that this was just another white night where they were previously tested and given so-called poison drinks to test their loyalty to the cause. Jones knew this. He knew what they were thinking, and he was very manipulative because of it. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He promised his people that if they took the drink and acted in solidarity, they would cross over to the other side where a heaven of peace and everlasting life awaited them and their God. He told the parents to let their children cross over first, meaning to take the drink first, because he knew that if the parents were going to drink first, they'd be dead before the children would take it, and the children would be too scared to do so after seeing what happened to their parents. So being the piece of shit that he was. He ordered the children to line up first, and any parents who wished to join them in their act of revolutionary suicide, finger quotes on that last word, to cross over to their heavenly kingdom together could do so. On this 45-minute death tape that I mentioned earlier, we can hear Jim Jones saying, to bring the children to the vats of Flavorade and to hurry and drink up for heaven awaited on the other side. He's getting increasingly impatient. He starts to yell and preach and prophesy of mass destruction that was inevitably on its way to the compound. I'm not going to play the tape for you because it's a lot to take in, but if you're a little bit twisted and curious, it's on YouTube. I've heard that tape before and it's awful it is gut-wrenching you just rips your heart out it is and it's frightening it's it's just awful 
It is. And to make it even worse, I'm not sure if Jones did this or if the poster of the tape did it, but on everything I found of that tape, there's a slowed down, very creepy song playing in the background. And I read some theories suggesting that Jim's just grabbed a tape of like a church hymn or something and recorded over that, but it still kept some of that music going. So it's just so creepy because it's like a slowed down song. So it sounds like a straight up horror soundtrack. You can hear Jim sing into the microphone, quote, I'm tired of this shit, quote, meaning he's tired of waiting for the children to take their turn and to just get on with it. Soon enough, and here's where my stomach drops every time I think about it, you hear the children scream in agony. You hear mothers wailing as their newborn babies are injected with the poison and are seizing in their arms. You can hear a child scream that he doesn't want to drink the drink because he's evidently watching all of his friends turn cherry red as they roll around on the floor, likely foaming at the mouth and rapidly breathing, yet suffocating as the air is useless to their tiny body. Then you start to hear an uproar from the crowd. This was no white night. It was real this time. Those who tried to escape were met with armed guards and were forced to drink. Others were shot. Others were injected. Then the adults lined up and started to drink the Flavorade because their children were already dead. They had nothing left to live for. And this is why Jim made the children go first. All the while, he's sitting on his throne preaching to the 909 suffocating people he once called his children and repeating, hurry, hurry, hurry. Knowing what we know about the effects of cyanide, can you imagine the terror in the air surrounding this place. I'm sure it was palpable. The kind of feeling you'd get waiting in line for the flavor aid must have been like none other, and one that I hope no one ever has to experience. One man survived by running away from the pavilion. He was met by the armed guards, but he was smart, and he lied to them, saying that Jim sent him, sorry, saying that Jim sent him on a special mission to survive and tell the world about the revolutionary act. So they let him go, and he ran into the forest. Because Georgetown was nearby, so he figured, if I can get away, I can get to Georgetown, I can call the cops. An old woman also survived, because she had been sleeping in her bunk throughout the chaos and didn't hear any of what was going on. Imagine the shock of waking up to 909 of your dead relatives and friends lying on the ground. That's wild. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Jones, on the other hand, watching the madness ensue, he was found to have died of a gunshot wound to the head. He saw the pain he put his devoted followers through and thought, nah, I'm good. And he took an easy way out. Something I forgot to mention earlier is that some of the members of the cult lived in Georgetown, Guyana, and would frequently communicate with Jonestown over a radio system that they had connected. So a mom and her three children were staying at the compound in Georgetown, and when they received a transmission saying it was time for the revolution to happen, the mom grabbed a knife, led her three children aged 10, 11, and 21 to the upstairs bathroom, she then slit the throats of the two younger children, and her oldest child, her daughter, also had a knife. They turned to each other and slit each other's throats together. And we know this because they pulled a man into the bathroom with them, asking him to participate, and he wouldn't, and he witnessed this all firsthand. But he survived. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. When authorities got wind of what was happening in Jonestown, they sent the U.S. military to clean up the mess. Upon their arrival, early decomposition had started to take place, and the smell was understandably horrendous. They noticed that the bodies hadn't been eaten by predators, and that's likely because the predators could sense that something was wrong with the corpses and that they shouldn't eat it which I've heard that's quite common if someone dies because of a sickness or poison. Um, they often won't be devoured by predators out in the wild because of that. 
One report says that from the sky, it looked like a rainbow of confetti was placed all over the ground, but it was just people's clothes and their bodies. Pictures from the aftermath show entire families laying face down on the ground, arms wrapped around each other. There's a theory that some people stayed alive to help position the bodies in a way that looked like peaceful deaths, because cyanide death is not a kind death. It's a slow starvation of oxygen fueled with foaming and seizing. So there's no way that the bodies would have died in such soft, you know, like embraces, so to speak. It was also discovered that all of their pets were injected with the flavoroid poison as well. And pictures show pet dogs bloated on the sidewalk, dead. They even poisoned their pet chimpanzee that they kept at Jonestown. They wanted nothing to live. In total, Jim Jones killed 150 children under the age of 10, 190 children between 11 and 12 years, and 304 children between 13 and 17 years old. The rest of the victims were adults, amounting to 909 in total. The ripples of Jim are still felt today. There have been many movies made about him and his cult, as well as many documentaries. There's even a band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Everyone's heard of what he did. I hope that this information is enlightening for those who don't know the story well. I hope it ignites a sense of compassion for those killed by Jones. They were terrified. They were held at gunpoint. And for 909 victims, there was no escape from death that fateful day. I, I've thought about Jonestown a few times throughout my life. And I think about those last moments those people have before drinking the flavor aid. And I'm like, man, they really couldn't just run. Like there was no way, like there were so many people there. Like how could they have not just been like, you know, scoot back, hide under a bush. Fade into the yeah. foliage. Yeah, but you know, I wasn't there, so I, I don't know. But it just yeah, it's one of those it's one of those cases that just blows my mind. And what if okay, just first of all, fantastic job. Um Thanks. I, <laughs> I've of course have heard this story, learned about it in school. And, uh, but you've brought up some things that I have never heard of, uh, especially the mom, uh, who took her kids into the bathroom and yeah. Yeah. That's the most haunting part to me. And I didn't include this, but I guess I'll say it. Um, what really sucks is that the dad of her children came to visit Guyana cause he really, really wanted to help out his oldest daughter escape. And she was there that day when they got the transmission so he was there with them when they got it. They kicked him out of the house and said, we don't want to see you. And then they went upstairs and killed each other. So so he, he didn't know, but he was moments away from them dying. Oh, my gosh. And he went to Guyana to save her. Yeah. Oh, that is rough. That's yeah. rough. And, yeah, like, I get it. Because growing up, I was also, like, why did no one do anything if they hated it so much? If so many people wanted to leave, why didn't they just leave? Well, they had guards with guns surrounding the pavilion. They weren't allowed to leave. And anyone who did was shot. Right. right. So everyone died no matter what. And um, in that movie, The Sacrament, that I told you about in part one, I think they show people being injected, like being held down and injected who didn't want to drink it because they're, you know, they're seeing all these children die and they were like, oh my gosh, this isn't a real white or this is a real white night. I didn't realize. So. Or like, why didn't they just like put the cup up to their lip, but not ingest, you know, it will probably burn their lip or whatever, but at least they're not drinking it. And so they can be like, Hmm. Ah, delicious. Yeah. And then just like spill it like into their shirt or something or like toss it. Like you pretend. Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I wonder if they had like guards there watching them, like making sure they drank it, the cup was empty, mm-hmm. and then moved on to the next person. I mean, we'll never truly know, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's like, so there's a website that has tons of photos from the aftermath of Jonestown because the military had to go and document everything that happened because this was a U.S. problem. 
Um, and one of the, like, I just got such a weird vibe from these photos. Cause you know, of course you're seeing like the aftermath of a mass suicide in my opinion. It's a murder. It's a murder. Yes. Um, but it was really haunting to see a table with cups on it that had been like flipped over and tossed around and a vat of this poison, which is like a little layer of liquid left in the bottom. And it's like, you know, someone just had that and died and their cups on the table. Yeah. Super haunting. Yeah. I, uh, obviously will not be posting pictures. Yes. (laughs) Sorry guys. uh, Military (laughs) took. Um, but you can, like Tessa said, you can see those online. Um, and be prepared to have a bucket because they are, um, they're haunting. It's, it's disgusting and extremely unfortunate, um, because you do see the victims and post death, uh, and it's just not a good sight. Yeah. And trigger warning. If you do that, there is dead animals and you will inevitably see dead toddlers and children because uh, as I said, they were the first to go. So, yeah. Um, I have seen those images, but I actually, when I f- saw a picture of one of the children, I actually stopped looking. I couldn't handle it. Yeah. It, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, there was one like funny enough, you know, just to add a little bit of humor to this. Um, there was one of a man laying on part of the pavilion And his shirt was off, and he had a really weird line down the center of his stomach. And I was like, what is that? Like, I couldn't figure it out. And dumb me, it took forever to figure out that there was a caption, and it said it was Jim Jones, and that he was lying there like that because they performed an on-site autopsy of his stomach. Oh, really? And so they had cut him open, and... His decomposition is vastly different from everyone else because his skin's yellow. It's not cherry red. Right. And I was like, wow, in all of his riches and glory and everything he claimed to be, he's just laying there open. And I'm so glad they did him dirty. Oh, me too. So Absolutely. glad. Yeah, well, when we pass on and go to heaven after this life, I can't wait to just, you know, beat the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if he's there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. He's not there. Um, Wow. Well, um, I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have as well, even if they have heard this story before. Um, Once again, well done. And do you have anything else for us today? First of all, thank you very much. Secondly, um, yeah, just last thoughts on this. The whole point was not to obsess over the gore or to dive crazy deep into some details. I left quite a bit out, but the whole goal is to change your perspective of this story. I really think it's tragic that people look at the people of Jonestown and say, oh, they're all crazies. I've heard that too many times. And, you know, if you were in their shoes, you'd be horrified. You couldn't escape. So I hope this changes your perspective and I hope that in the future people start to understand the story a little bit better because there's a lot to learn about keeping your mind safe. And uh, yeah, last thing, don't join a cult. <laughs> don't join a cult. If you if you learned anything from Tessa's episodes, do not join a cult. It never ends well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.